Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a British director and author, renowned for his work on television documentaries and spin-off videos for some of the most iconic British science fiction series, including Doctor Who and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. With a career that spanned across the animation department of the classic film Who Framed Roger Rabbit to working on BAFTA award-winning sequences, he's now produced a book, 42, The Wildly Improbable Ideas of Douglas Adams. It's a Sunday Times number one bestseller, collating the genius of his late friend and collaborator to a treasure trove of unpublished material. From predicting the rise of smartphones to envisioning electronic books, this work is a testament to a visionary mind. Kevin John Davies, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello, thank you for having me. We all love Douglas Adams. I've never met anybody who didn't instantly adore him when they met him, or indeed just when they came across his work. How did you first meet him? Well, I followed Doctor Who. I was uh, I grew up with it. It was always there. I was born a couple of years before it began, so I can just about remember William Hartnell. And the fans kind of got themselves organised when they reached the age where they could in sort of mid to late 70s. And a fan I was visiting said, I'm going to listen to this thing. It's, it's on Radio 4. And as a teenager, you know, Radio 4, I listen to it a lot now, but not back then. <laughs> and he said, it's a sort of comedy science fiction thing. It's written by the guy who wrote that recent Doctor Who. So I thought, well, that'll be interesting. And a couple of weeks later, he asked me, would I bring my tape recorder along to interview the man himself who wrote it, Douglas Adams? So I'd only heard the second repeat of Hitchhikers when I went to meet him. And um, it was very early days. He'd just taken a full-time job as script editor of Doctor Who because he needed the money. He was not yet rich and famous. And he said, oh, I've got this to do and that to do and there's the book, if only I could finish the bloody thing. You know, it was that early on and when we mentioned Hitchhiker he said oh you know about that so there you go it was real early days extraordinary tell me how this book's come together because I just need to describe it to people it's absolutely beautiful it's it's huge it's heavy it's glossy but it's got hundreds and hundreds of documents facsimiles of of documents written by Adams photographs all sorts of things in it I mean, how did you get access to all of this and how did you begin putting it together? Well, the publishing company, Unbound, they came to me because they'd been recommended by Douglas's family and the agent for Douglas's estate who knew me because I'd been to the archive once before. In 2016, the radio director, Dirk Maggs, who was adapting the official sequel to Hitchhikers written by Owen Colfer, he was adapting it into the final radio show. And he said, I want you to go and see if there's anything in Douglas's archives that we can sort of pepper into the script and make it Douglasy it up a bit, he said. <laughs> and so I went to Douglas's former college up at Cambridge and St John's College. And in the library there, the family, since Douglas's untimely death, the family had sort of deposited all his material. 67 books covering almost his entire life and they are in the reading room of the special collections unit so you have to get permission you can't just walk in and look at it you have to get permission written permission from the family to go so I'd been through it and I'd been looking at it thinking this is amazing you know I think there's a book in this I never dreamt it would be me 
But, you know, several years later, they came to me. It's Well, it's nearly three years ago now that they approached me and said, would I like to go and do it again, only this time do the entire lot? And I think I pretty much got there. I think there's about, I probably went through 85% of the material. And it does cover everything, right from health reports when he was a child that I think his mother must have kept, all the way through his school at Brentwood in Essex, his university days where, of course, he really wanted to go to Cambridge to follow in the footsteps of his Monty Python heroes and join Footlights, and he certainly did. And he, he used to joke that he did practically no essays while he was at university, he spent all of his time on stage or writing and performing comedy skits and things. So there was all that. Then there was all of his most famous writing, because despite the fact that he used to take the mickey out of computers and robots and things like that, he wasn't very technical at first, and he did everything on a typewriter, and we're so lucky that we have all these boxes and boxes of hard copy, mm. and that's what I had to wade through. Quite, quite extraordinary the way it's been been put together, and of course, as you say, it was published by Unbound, so that means it was crowdfunded. It was, and that's their model, that's how they do things. They're a, a small publisher by general publishing standards, and they, with a book like this, you know, if you're going to do something very rich and illustrated, because it is essentially a huge picture book, they'd done one before, they'd done a thing called Letters of Note, and the sequel, More Letters of Note, they sent me that as a kind of template. So you're looking at an A4 format book, quite heavy because it's 320 pages, and on one page, you, on one side, you get the, the actual facsimile of the handwriting or the typing, terrible typing, all full of tipex and blobs and mistakes and coffee stains, and his scribbly handwriting with all the crossings out, lots of deletions and marginalia, to sort of go through all of that... You know, there it is in the page, and it's hopefully, when people get the book, it'll be like looking over my shoulder down at the desk when I was pouring through all this paperwork. And into the mind of this truly brilliant writer. I mean, not only Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, So Long and uh, what it, Goodbye and Thanks for All the Fish, <laughs> The Dark Tea Time of the Soul. I mean, it, just amazing books. Yeah, really, absolutely. really amazing. Absolutely. And his, and his personal favourite of his own books, which was Last Chance to See, which is his only factual book. But I also think it's one of his funniest. Mm. So if you haven't checked that out, it's Worth, worth reading. Well, that's where he goes around and, and finds creatures on the brink of extinction. Yeah. As a documentary maker, I interviewed him quite a lot over the years, different times. we crossed Our, our lives crisscrossed for the next 20 years after I first met him. And I worked on the TV show of Hitchhikers and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it was getting to know him over the years. I realised that he, he spoke as he wrote. And he wrote like he spoke, you know, that was that was just the way it all came pouring out of him. And you can see it on the page, this great mind at work. And as he got older and in certainly in the last 10 years, he became more and more fascinated with real technology and with evolutionary science and conservation. You know, he, he became a champion of Save the Rhino and the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund and things like that. He travelled. One of the times I interviewed him, He'd just come back from Madagascar, his very first visit to go and look at the I.I., a rare breed of lemur, for an Observer magazine article. They wanted to send somebody who could write, but who was a novice in such matters. And he went deep into the jungle and they did eventually get to see this weird creature. And he wrote about it. And I met him two weeks 
after he'd come back to interview him and he said, you know what, I really enjoyed that. I want to do more of that. I think there might be more of that in my future. And he was right. Mm. Two years later, he, he took almost an entire year off and did many trips to lots and different places looking at lots of endangered species. And, of course, he died in May 2001. It was very unexpected. It was, yes. He, he'd since emigrated to America. For the last two years of his life, he was living in Santa Barbara with the idea of trying to get the Hitchhiker movie made. It got very, very close at that point. And he had a little daughter, and he was enjoying seeing her growing up. And sadly, yeah, he, he was in the gym and... Um, he had a strenuous workout, having apparently only just been diagnosed with high blood pressure the week before. And, um, yeah, he just had a massive heart attack and, boom, he was gone. So terrible shock to his family, to his friends and to his millions of fans around the world. Mm. And he he does have fans all over the world. And that, I think the crowdfunding was successful on this book because of the international nature of that. And there are people everywhere that they feel that even if they never met him, they feel like they know him a little bit mm. through his writing. And his memory is very precious to to lots of people, including me. Well, to, to know him, you only have to open this book because it really does go into the, the deepest recesses of his mind. He's writing things. He's working stuff out. You see the sort of mechanics of these fabulous books coming together through the documents that you've reproduced here. As you say, from his very early school days, there's early essays and, and so on. And then in Cambridge, where you, you finally see what is to become this genius, really emerging his student union card signed by Jack Straw is there. <laughs> yes. And, of course, Footlights. And then there's a huge amount of, of memories from Footlights with all sorts of people who we now know. I mean, Griff Rees-Jones is there, John Lloyd is there, all sorts of people that, that are still around and still entertaining us today. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you go through the cast lists in some of those flyers for those... I mean, they were they were comedy nights. They called them smoker concerts. That was an old-fashioned phrase for it. And you can see people like the writer Sue Lim, who came and did a little piece with us at the British Library a few weeks ago and revealed some stories about Douglas, which made everybody laugh. And, and she's, she's a great writer of her own comedy stuff on Radio 4. Douglas loved radio. He liked the freedom that it gave. I think he enjoyed that more than... You know, I'm biased because I worked on the TV version, but I think he enjoyed it more than the TV version because it was so freeing. He said he always said the pictures are better on radio. Mm. And he appointed Dirk Mags to continue his legacy. At the time, they were going to do it together. It was going to happen as uh, continuing the radio series. Originally, there were two radio series, and that's how it all began. And then the two books, the first two books. As Douglas continued to write more and more books under kind of duress, really, he was not exactly a prolific writer. He struggled. He really worried at the business of writing, and the book shows that, correcting himself and changing things. I mean, nowadays people work on word processors. Douglas did eventually get into word processors and famously became a proponent of the Mac and every variation of the Macintosh computer. But in those days, you know, he was slogging it out in exercise books and on the typewriter, and you can see it all there, all the thinking going on, yeah. Mm. In 1976, he wrote in his notebook, I certainly don't intend to spend my life being professionally funny. It's certainly not something I envisage as a career. <laughs> I think that, I, I do wonder when I look at that and I think, well, that was him applying for a regular job. He was struggling. He was finding it hard 
to fit into the pattern of writing one-liners and things like that for the Burkis Way and other radio shows. And really, he needed something to give himself the free expression that he needed, something more long-form, which he was better at. And so when he was given the chance to write his own radio show, which became Hitchhikers, I think that unleashed the potential that had always been there. Mm. But yes, that, that piece when he was writing, I think it was a, a job application. I think he had to say the right thing at that point to get an ordinary job. Can you imagine if he had gone off to be a shipping clerk? <laughs> in, yes, in, in, in um, Hong Kong of all places. Yeah. Other people have suggested, do you think that was actually a tap on the shoulder for a MI5? Mm. Well, you never know. There's <laughs> never plenty know. of stories like that. Um, there's a wonderful chapter that just tells us all about really how the guide comes together. And we, we see original pictures, there's fan letters, there's artwork, there's scripts, there's photographs. Also a little section called On Love, which talks about some of his close female relationships. Well, he he was a bit of a ladies' man. He was he was a bit of a naughty lad. I think the first time I met him to interview him, I've got still got the audio cassette. And he took three phone calls. I swear it was from three different women setting up dates. Um, but he used to turn the tape recorder off just before answering the phone. And then with a kind of grin on his face, he'd release pause when he'd put the phone down and tried to complete the last sentence that he hadn't quite finished. But he knew he was being funny then. He was also a terrible procrastinator. And when we were in the Doctor Who office interviewing him, the producer, Graham Williams, kept sticking his head in the door saying, uh, Douglas, we've got a scene to write this afternoon, trying to chivy him along. And Douglas would draw him into the conversation because anything to put off writing, he found it very difficult. There is a very famous story of him, and it is true that he was locked in a hotel room for several weeks, a very nice hotel room, just off Hyde Park, by the publisher because he'd blown every deadline that there was possible to blow. And um, they forced him to sit there and finish the damn book. And they would only let him out to go and use the hotel swimming pool or go for a walk in Hyde Park, a little bit of exercise, and then straight back to the typewriter and banging it out with the publisher sort of glaring at him from across the other side of the suite. So, And that did happen. And there's a note in there where he says, Dear Sonny, who was the publisher, he says, I've, I've just gone for a walk to clear my head. And here's the latest stuff. So, yeah, the publisher sat there waiting for the pages hot, steaming off the typewriter. Now, you talk about him being a ladies' man, but he was not conventionally good-looking, and he talks about his looks a lot, doesn't he? Particularly his nose. His nose was famous. <laughs> it was immortalised in the movie of Hitchhikers because there's a whole sort of uh, culture that worships the sort of nose and the sneezing and everything. And um, all the architecture inside the building itself and the the altar and everything has giant models of Douglas's nose as part <laughs> of the uh, scenery. And it massively tall as well. He was very tall. Yes, I looked up to him in every way. <laughs> he was, I think most people did. Yes, he was six, five and a half. I mean, he used to say that when he watched Monty Python on television, which was his favourite, you know, he looked at John Cleese and the others and Maybe a lot of them were quite tall. And he said, I'm tall, I'm funny, I can do that. <laughs> he wanted. He, he said, I wanted to be John Cleese, and it took me quite some time to realise the job was taken. 
<laughs> you talk a lot about his mail because he once he became famous, of course, he's just completely inundated with fan letters. And I, I love the one where he writes, he scribbles on it, answered at the top of each one. But on one he says, I think I answered this one. If not, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Uh, it was interesting to see, yes, in those early few years, he was trying to answer every piece of fan mail, but it soon became overwhelming. We're very lucky that he had a series of PAs who probably kept all his papers in order because he was quite a chaotic man. I remember his desk being quite haphazard. So um, the fact that all his stuff is so well-preserved, we're all very lucky. Those of us who would have liked to have had much more of Douglas, here it is in the book. This is a little snippet of everything I could find. It's mm. it's the best of everything. Oh, it's still not everything. I mean, I, it, it's that whole process you have to go through. Same as when I'm editing a documentary, editing a book, I felt was the same process, finding the story and then painfully having to decide, well, I love this bit, but it doesn't quite fit. And so working through his whole life, really, it's mm. vaguely chronological. You know, you can dip into it randomly if you want. It's that kind of book. You can pick it up and just read a piece here and there. Or if you want to slog your way right the way through it, there is a sort of progression. There's a story. Absolutely. And that goes through fame, as I say. Lots of invitations to collaborate. He worked with with many, many great people. And then we come on uh, 1985 to The Holistic Detective. Tell us about the genesis of this. There was actually, there's a, there was a piece that I didn't get into the book, which was an early attempt at doing a detective story. A guy who lived above a kind of greengrocer's and was a bit of a sort of irresponsible kind of guy. But that turned into later the Dirt Gently. Douglas was desperate to escape from Hitchhikers because the publishers just wanted more and more of the same. And so did the audience, frankly. But he was eager to try something else and he did this sort of genre-busting story which had a little bit of everything in it, you know, sort of ghost detective, love story, mystery, bit of everything. And Dirt Gently takes an, an holistic approach to solving whatever mystery might come along. It might be a stray cat or it might be something like in this story, which is, you know, going to possibly the end of the world, involving a bit of time travel and all the usual Douglas things. Douglas was a big fan of P.G. Woodhouse, right, and the writers like that. He said... He doesn't see himself as a science fiction writer. He was always saying this. He said, but unfortunately, nearly everything I think of seems to involve robots and spaceships. <laughs> so <laughs> there wasn't a lot of that in the P.G. Woodhouse. But, uh... Here, in, in the book, he describes the, the character of Dirk Gently. I, I, I love the opening line. There's a long tradition of great detectives and Dirk Gently does not belong to it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice section in there for the third incomplete novel at his death. It was published a couple of years after he died, The Salmon of Doubt. But there's quite a lot of general notes and jottings about the possible storyline, a lot of which didn't make it into the final as-published version. Mm. And there's an awful lot. There's a very funny section about his uh, attitude to a certain bunch of Australian holidaymakers that he ran across <laughs> on one of his many trips. He did like to travel. And, you know, he was a well-travelled man, a well-read man. And, yeah, in his later years, he got more into real science. That's what his preferred reading matter was. I got a feeling if Douglas had lived longer, we might have actually got a real science book from him. I think that's where he was headed. Mm. Well, you've got a whole section here on, on science and technology. So tell us about this, because, I mean, as you were saying, he was an advocate for conservation, but also a real innovator. He was invited to be a guest speaker. He was a very entertaining speaker. 
and he was although he was quite prepared he made it sound quite off the cuff and he would quite often just ignore the microphone and walk up and down the stage as if he was extemporizing and thinking it up as he went along but he had kind of thought it all out before and prepared it in his head and these tech conferences were amazing i remember interviewing him and i've got a recording of an interview i did in 1992 where he said oh i'm off to japan next week and i'm going to be talking at this tech conference and in the audience will be the head of sony and francis ford coppola and george lucas mm. so he was mixing with interesting people yeah he was he was in demand almost like a sort of um you know if they'd had a long weekend number crunching and talking about the actual nuts and bolts and the tech of whatever the software or whatever it was that they were working on, mobile phones, all sorts of things they got him in. He'd come in as a kind of breath of fresh air and the sort of after-dinner entertainment, so to speak. Mm. And uh, there are a few, you can find a few online of his... uh, of his speeches at these tech conferences, yeah. And there's a, there's a document that he has said, which is called, I think, We're Already Living in a Digital World. Mm. Yeah, no, he believed in it. And when I, I interviewed him in 95, and he said that even then, he said, I want to get this country wired up. There should be a fibre optic to every home. And then he admitted, he said, well, it's partly because, you know, at that time he was working in CD-ROM, which he knew was a passing trend. And he said, but I want to have a delivery mechanism because I know that soon we'll all be delivering everything online. He was talking about this in the mid-90s when most people hadn't even quite got the internet yet. Mm. And I mean, he does say that he would have liked to have been a software designer. He said, I don't know whether he would have had the discipline, frankly, but he certainly enjoyed working on the game of The Hitchhiker's Guide and another game that he did later called Bureaucracy. He enjoyed that kind of the logic puzzle of working out where the story was going to go and all the multiple choices in one of those games. They were text-based adventure games, very popular by a company in America called Infocom. And he enjoyed the whole business of that. He got quite into it. But um, I think you need a certain discipline to sit down and and really number crunch like that for yeah. a, you know writing code. It's so interesting to look back. I mean, you you talk about him speaking off the cuff and and so on. And of course, he was part of the Cambridge Debating Society. Oh yes. And it's lovely to to read about him doing something that looked like it was completely off the cuff. He arrives wearing his dressing gown and eating a bowl of cornflakes. This, of course, we then find by reading the documents was carefully scripted. But what I found really lovely is that you then look at that and then you take it to the character of Arthur Dent in Hitchhikers, who, of course, famously wears his dressing gown. Yes, the dressing gown, interestingly, you know, it wasn't actually part of the radio show. Why would it be? You don't necessarily describe what people are wearing on radio. <laughs> but when they came to doing the TV version in 1980, Douglas had written a piece in episode three where Arthur Dent takes his dressing gown off and goes and puts on a silver spacesuit that he finds on the spaceship. And the producer, who sadly died a couple of weeks ago, Alan J.W. Bell, who Douglas didn't always get on with. There was a slight age gap between them, and they were quite different men. But Alan said, wouldn't it be funnier if he just kept his dressing gown on, wandering like Christopher Robin in space? (laughs) And so that became part of the thing. And in later books, Douglas referred to the dressing gown. It became part of the canon, you know. Yeah. Now, there are lots of letters in here which are written after his death by people that loved him. Tell us about some of those. Well, the publishers suggested, why don't we ask some of Douglas's friends, notable people, to write some pieces, write some letters, 
either remembering Douglas or as if to Douglas because they're missing him. And they are very touching. I've had people contact me and say that certain ones in there, Margot Buchanan, a singer that he was very friendly with, wrote a beautiful piece. His business partner, Robbie Stamp. Neil Gaiman, who, of course, wrote the first sort of book about Douglas, which was called Don't Panic, back in the mid-'80s. Neil Gaiman was is now a big, famous fantasy writer, but at the time was a jobbing journalist, and he wrote this book called Don't Panic, and they became great mates, and they remained friends all the way through, you know, and uh, he's written a lovely piece as well, which he also read out as a nice surprise when we had a, a function at the South Bank Centre just a few weeks ago. And Neil joined in remotely and read his piece. Mm. But so, yeah, they are quite moving. And um, I found it very sad when we had to get to the chapter. We knew we were coming the story if you tell it sequentially. It's the same with every biography of someone who's passed. You have to eventually hit that point where they they leave us. And so, um, yeah, there's a nice piece in there by his editor of the time, Sue Freestone, who passed away herself. Um, I think only earlier this year. Mm. So, yeah, I think the whole lot is covered. Everything's in there. Uh, I think we could have put more in about his family life and things like that, but um, we were working with mainly it's about Douglas Adams, the writer. Mm. It's about his writing. And he, even if you haven't read Hitchhikers and any of other uh, Douglas's material, I think... If you're interested in writing, which is what I guess we're talking about today, mm-hmm. you'll learn something in this book about how this particular writer tackled the problems mm-hmm. because he really, really did wrestle with it. And I think when later adaptations came along, for instance, like the movie, you know, not all the fans are big fans of the movie because it messed with Douglas's carefully crafted words. He would create these long sentences with sub-clauses and parentheses and bits, and then at the end would be a word that would whip the rug from under you and make you laugh. And he spent ages getting the rhythm right. His official biographer, Nick Webb, who was a lovely guy, passed away in 2012, he said, Douglas could hear the music in the words. That was his secret. He could hear the poetry. That's just so lovely, and that's where we'll leave it, thanking Douglas Adams for his wonderful musical prose. Kevin John Davies, thank you very much indeed. Thank you again. 42, The Wildly Improbable Ideas of Douglas Adams is published by Unbound, and it's out now. Many thanks to my guest, Kevin John Davies, who edited the book. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks also to the production team of Mariella Bevan, Tamsin Howard and Harrison Warlock. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listening.